From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. COVID can claim your sense of smell, usually temporarily, but some people are born anosmic, that is, nose-blind, or they may lose the sense to another condition altogether. Smell is really the Cinderella of the senses. Nobody pays it any attention. And it's come to the ball, so people are giving it attention. (laughs) And I would hope with that attention and money and data that we have interest in finding help for people. Anosmic ambassador and comedian Dia Klein of Niwot shares how the inability to smell has affected her life, like how often she's almost burned down her house. Then, a new novel of magical realism, whose protagonist has an unusual ability. I don't know if there could be a character like Lala in real life. I'd be open to it, but I've never met anyone like her. You may know chef Andrew Zimmern from his TV show Bizarre Foods, but behind the jovial traveler is another story. I have a disease inside of me that it will definitely kill me the moment I stop being as vigilant as I am. If I can just not drink again, I always have a chance. Andrew Zimmern kicks off a new season of Back From Broken. Listen free wherever you get your podcasts and at backfrombroken.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. COVID-19 often results in the loss of smell and taste, mostly temporary. Recently, we met a prominent Denver chef who experienced these symptoms and a Colorado neuroscientist who specializes in smell. Then we asked for your experiences, and many of you reached out, including Jessica Nielsen of Denver, who got sick over the summer. My cat's litter box is in my office, unfortunately. And so I went to spray some air freshener when he walked out and I was like, whoa, I can't smell the air freshener anymore. Uh, That's a bit weird. And so I kind of went around my house doing a little sniff test, uh, smelling candles, spraying some other air fresheners. And I just could not really smell anything. And then later in the day, I was eating and food just kind of tasted bland. Nielsen lost scent and taste for about two weeks. The only lasting effect? She no longer enjoys sour cream. She says it tastes like cilantro, which she doesn't like. We also heard from Rebecca Wood, who lives in Thornton, and calls her experience surreal. Because I still had texture. I ate a burger once after I was feeling much better. The lettuce was crisp. The bun was springy and crummy. And... The burger had a meaty texture that was weird. And I thought, wow, this should really taste good. (laughs) But I didn't taste anything. It was all just a textural experience. Her symptoms also lasted about two weeks. She had COVID in June, but says sometimes she's still visited by a mysterious metallic odor, one that reminds her of how her kids smell when they've been on antibiotics. Here's the thing. We didn't just hear from folks who lost their senses to COVID. Several of you wrote in about your lifelong struggles with anosmia. Some people are born with nose blindness. Others acquire it for any number of reasons. These anosmic lifers hope the pandemic becomes a chance to share their stories. So let's meet Dia Klein. She's the public ambassador for Fifth Sense UK, which supports people affected by smell and taste disorders around the world. And Klein lives right here in Colorado, in Niwot. 
Before 2020, no one knew the word anosmia, let alone how to say it, but let alone what it meant. And I'm talking doctors. I'm talking the people who suffered from it. We didn't know what we had. And it's this thing called anosmia. But even more interesting than just that word is the fact that there are two types of anosmics. We have the acquired anosmics. These are the people who get it via COVID, head injury, any militudes of ways you can think of that acquire anosmia. And sometimes it lasts and sometimes it's temporary. But then there are those of us who are congenital. That means we were born without the ability to smell. And so many of us grew up and have lived our entire lives not knowing what this thing was called. Hmm. And it's been amazing journey learning who we are. There's been a bit of uh, coming out with COVID-19 because it's in the yes. popular discourse. Yes. And although we don't want to consider anything about the pandemic to be beneficial, a silver lining could be the awareness of anosmia and the people who suffer from it, which brings on the further conversation of the two types of anosmics because the experiences are wholly different. I can imagine losing something you had versus never having had it. Uh, you fall into the latter category. At what age did you become self-aware enough to know you were different and you lacked this thing? I have a very clear memory of this. I was four years old, and I remember walking into my house with my father and brother, and as soon as we walked in the front door, they both exclaimed, spaghetti for dinner! And I couldn't figure out how they knew this because you could not see the kitchen from the front door. And I'm asking, how do you know? And my father told me to just breathe in through your nose and smell which was entirely not helpful and continued that same command to me for most of my childhood, just breathe in through your nose and smell. And I realized that there was this thing they could do that not only I couldn't comprehend, but I couldn't do it. How do you think it's affected your life? It sounds like based on how your father treated you, that maybe there was some frustration there. Frustration is the word for not being believed. It's the idea of being told that you're just not getting it. Keep trying, which I always like to suggest that if you have a blind child or a deaf child, that really wouldn't be the tactic one would take with them to tell your blind child, no, no, just look through your eyes and see. Just try harder. It, you'll grow into it. And so the frustration was not being heard, mm. not being listened to, not just by my family, but by doctors who would just say, ah, she just isn't noticing. She's smelling because, oh, here's the big one, because she can taste. Because she can taste, she has to be able to smell. We learned in a conversation just recently that those two senses are closely linked in, in most people, I guess we should say. So you can taste things, but you can't smell them. Do I have that right? Correct. I like to consider my sense of taste to be a pure 
sense of taste. And my comparison that I like to give people on how to think about this is you, as a smelling, tasting person, you get the really cool, super cool box of Crayola brand 96 crayons with the sharpener in the back. You're like the cool kid at school. Uh-huh. I show up with the Rose Art off-brand box of 12. <laughs> my, my tools are just not as deep, mm. but I have the ability to taste, pure taste. And what you, you people who smell and taste, think that you are calling a taste is most of the time flavor, which is what you get with the combination of smell and taste. So I have an exceptional sense of taste and I love doing taste tests and challenges with people to gauge just how well I can taste. Now, a neuroscientist we spoke with the other day seemed endlessly frustrated that there's not a good treatment or cure for the loss of the sense of smell, or in your case, a never having had it. Uh, There's some smell training, which he said produces modest benefits. Has this been something of an odyssey for you in life? Doctors don't understand the difference. They really don't between congenital and acquired anosmia. Most congenitals have no idea why they can't smell because no doctor is giving them tests. Sometimes you can get an MRI. Sometimes you have a genetic syndrome like Kalman syndrome where that is an effect. Maybe people in your family have it. But the doctors themselves weren't interested in finding the why of that answer. And since COVID happened and we have the world experiencing the loss of smell, this anosmic experience, all of a sudden we're really gaining traction and interest in learning how do we help these people. Mm. But the focus is still on how do we help the acquireds do it. And they apply the acquired methodology to us congenitals by making us smell things, by having us do assessments that have no place in someone who has never experienced the smell. It is frustrating. And I would hope that the benefit of all of this attention on anosmia would be treatments, not just for acquireds, Mm. but for congenitals. I mean, smell is really the Cinderella of the senses. Nobody pays it any attention. And it's just now, it's come to the ball. So people are giving it (laughs) attention. And I would hope with that attention and money and data that we have interest in finding help for people. I wonder if you have developed tools, shortcuts, workarounds for the moments when smell is an alert. The smell of smoke, the smell of natural gas. Uh, Those are things I suppose that alarms can detect. Um, Are there ways in which you feel this leaves you vulnerable? Uh, Yeah, I've almost burnt my house down four times. I've definitely given myself food poisoning. and Oh, because I you defini- can't smell if something's bad. No, no, oh. no, no. I, I mean, I'll, I can taste that that's sour or that's off. Something can taste off, but that's after I've eaten it. And now I'm sick and, oh, I, I, I gave myself food poisoning. But as far as tools for how to not burn your house down... Yeah, there's not a lot. Uh, My cat saved me a couple times 
meowing and trying to get my attention. And so without her, I definitely would have had less of a house to come back to at the end of that day. What was she alerting to? Did she see flames? Well, it was in my kitchen and black smoke, flames, and I'm in another room. I had left the room and I just heard that insistent, you know, meow, meow, mom, like, what are you doing? And I'm getting angry, like, good night. Why are you screaming at me? And I go back into the kitchen and, and the cat's just meowing her head off and flame and black smoke. I'm like, I had no idea. Do you know how long it takes for a house to fill with enough smoke for you to actually notice it? <laughs> it takes a long time. Hmm. Do you consider this part of your identity? You know, for the longest time, it was so irrelevant. It was just a, a thing like, yeah, I'm, my name's Dia, like the airport, whatever. And I can't smell Yep, I can taste. Nope, can't smell. And I just moved on with it. It was just such a non-issue. It didn't affect how I acted in my daily life, how I interacted with people. It didn't affect my self-esteem. I'm not concerned with, do I stink? Everyone stinks, so I'm no different. But it wasn't until I found out the name in my mid-40s that I found out congenital anosmia is the thing that I am. And I started finding other people who knew my reality, who understood exactly where I came from and how I live, that I started embracing my anosmia as a part of my identity, as a thing that does make me unique, as a as an identifier that does make me stand out with someone who has a different perspective on the world that is interesting to talk to about. Thank you so much for sharing your experience with us. I I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much for asking about my nose. Dia Klein of Niwat is a congenital anosmic. She was born without the ability to smell. She hopes the widespread loss of smell to COVID-19 raises awareness of folks who experience permanent nose blindness. Klein is public ambassador for a global nonprofit called Fifth Sense UK. At CPR.org, you'll find a bunch of links to Anosmia resources, including Dia Klein's YouTube comedy channel. Mom and pop shops that line Colorado's main streets have struggled in the pandemic. Last summer, CPR's Caitlin Kim visited the small town of Wellington to see how businesses were adapting. Located just north of Fort Collins, the community rallied to help merchants. Now, almost a year later, Caitlin reports that most have managed to stay open. Kelly DeVries owns a small gift shop on the main drag of Wellington. Her store is small. She's the only employee, and she doesn't even pay herself. She did not qualify for the program most politicians tout to help small businesses, the Paycheck Protection Program, which aims to keep employees on payrolls. I was intensely angry, frustrated. Um, I felt like there was a ton of cronyism payouts to large corporations while small business, like the backbone of our country, was suffering. But she's a glass half full type of person and has tried to focus on the positives. One thing that COVID has shown us that in turmoil, it brings about creative and innovative solutions that may not have otherwise come about. One of her creative solutions was putting lockers outside the store when she had to cut back hours after her kids went to remote learning. Customers can order online and pick up whenever they want. People love that so that they can shop anytime, day and night and get it the next day. So things like that, I, I, I don't know, it gave me hope for 
small business for the future because entrepreneurs and techies, they're the ones that come up with the most ingenious solutions during times of heavy pressures. She's also felt support on the local level from her tiny town. She says people there have rallied to help small businesses. Tom Casabana, owner of the restaurant Papa's Table, agrees. I feel that I'm actually doing better in a small town like Wellington than I would have in a big, in a big town. The town provided funds to help with things like outdoor seating and curbside pickup. He and his wife and their two kids run the restaurant with two employees. PPP funds helped bridge them through some tough times. I'm not getting ahead. I'm not really making money. But I'm holding my own. The doors still open. The doors will be open. But it's been a frustrating process, especially with rules and requirements for restaurants changing throughout the year, from 25 percent indoor capacity to 50 percent to having to close indoor dining altogether. It's been a roller coaster. And while outdoor seating has helped, Casabana says the idea of eating dinner outside in winter, even with heaters, isn't appealing to a lot of people. Still, you have to have the hard times to appreciate the good times. And this was a hard time. It was a hard time for, for the town, for the country myself, for everybody. But um, I, I'm hoping it's going to be better in the coming months. It's going to get much better. Much of that hope stems from the vaccine rollout. Most business owners see that as a silver bullet. As more people get vaccinated, they'll come back to eat, drink and shop. Peter Pronko owns Proper Time Jewelry and watches in Wellington with his wife. They opened the shop after the research scientists retired. Both have gotten their first shots, with the second coming soon. We'll probably be able to open up the retail store once that happens. But I, I, I'm, I'm going to keep the retail store closed until we're fully vaccinated and fully immune. He set up a drop-off system for repairs right outside the door, so they don't really interact with customers anymore, something he misses. He says it's been a depressing situation all the way around, and he gives low marks to the federal response last year, which has mainly been gridlock. He's hopeful the new Congress will try to work together and has a message for them. Think about your constituents and, and think about the country and, and work to try to relieve all the difficulties that everyone is facing right now. Uh, that's the best advice I can give, but quite frankly, I don't think anybody's going to listen to it. Most struggling business owners aren't counting on Congress to come through. They're counting on people getting vaccinated. Restaurant owner Casabana. Biden says he's going to vaccinate everybody. So I'm hopeful by, uh, you know, the summer and, and going into the fall, things will be good. If they're not, then I'm going to put the blame on the Biden administration. The fall and winter holidays are busy times for his restaurant. They missed out last year, and he doesn't want to miss out this year. In Washington, D.C., I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. Everyone at Holly Heights Nursing Home in Denver knew Jim and Dottie Russ as a pair. And if daddy was missing too long, mommy would go to ask him, well, where's my husband? You seen my husband? Where's my husband? Their daughter, Jeannie Davis, helped take care of them toward the end of their lives before they both died of COVID-19. They are some of the almost 2,500 people who've died of the virus in Colorado's elder care facilities. CPR's Andrea Dukakis talks with Davis about her parents. Jeannie Davis's parents met in high school. They grew up in Pittsburgh, and when they were just 19 and 20 years old, they got married. She ruled the roost with him. I mean, very few would ever have guessed that she would shake her fist in his face because he was 6'3", and she's only 5'2". 
Jim Ross went to work in a shoe shop first and eventually started selling houses, helping other Black people buy homes with loans from the Federal Housing Administration. Because, of course, it was difficult for minorities to acquire property and ownership back in that day. Later, Jim Russ got several awards for his contributions to Pittsburgh, all the while Dottie Russ stayed home to care for their four children, where she was in charge. Davis says despite her parents' traditional roles, they divided a lot of the work at home. She did all the cooking. He did all the grocery shopping. He shopped for her clothes because she could never make up her mind what she wanted. And he wasn't going to be in that store for three days. We need to get what you want and get out of here, Dot. Jim Russ doted on his wife. It wasn't anything for him to come in the door with some flowers. They loved each other and weren't afraid to show it. They kissed a lot. Even after 60-some years, they still kissed a lot. Not throaty, but, you know, the peck on the cheek and all of that. Jeannie Davis eventually moved to Denver. When her parents' health started to decline, Davis brought them to Denver, too. She learned from her parents to always take care of family. But they worried she was putting her life on hold to care for them. And my response to that was simply, what are you talking about? You all raised me. You taught me how to walk, how to talk. You taught me how to be independent how to lead and not follow. You taught me all of that. Then they needed more medical care than Davis could give them. She moved them to Holly Heights Nursing Home, which was close by, so she could still see them all the time. The workers at the home became family. Then COVID came, and on March 10th, I was unable to visit with my parents. So they connected over video. Her parents seemed healthy until early April, That's when the nursing home announced an outbreak among residents. Dozens got sick. A few days later, the Russes went to breakfast. Then Dottie went to play bingo. Jim went back to their room to watch westerns. And right around 12, the CNA went in to get them for lunch, and they were totally lethargic. It was like, I'm told, that they were hit by the same arrow at the same time. Davis got special permission to visit in person one more time. Dottie Russ died on April 16th, then Jim Russ died. They had been together for nearly 70 years, and their deaths were separated by fewer than 70 hours. The day after Mommy passed away, I woke up that morning, and there was a rainbow in my bedroom. The day after my dad passed away, There was another rainbow in my bedroom. 29 years, she'd lived in her house and never seen a rainbow. To her, it was a message from her parents. We're here. We're safe. It's okay. We're still together. But she misses them still, every day. I'm Andrea Dukakis, CPR News. Find more stories of Coloradans affected by COVID-19 a year into the pandemic at CPR.org. Hey, it's me, Elsa Chang from NPR. 
Did you recently donate to this station? Maybe it was a spur of the moment thing. You heard people on air saying how important it is to give, and then you thought, yeah, I can do that. Or maybe you give reliably every year or monthly as a sustainer. Whether this was your first gift or your 50th, thanks for supporting Public Radio. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. What's my cat thinking? What's going on between my dog's ears? Questions pet owners have no doubt asked themselves repeatedly. And it's one of the reasons the novel Other People's Pets is such a delicious read. Author R.L. Mazes, who lives in Niwot, writes about a young woman who is an animal empath. She feels in her body what animals feel which makes her a stellar student in veterinary school, until she has to drop out because of a family crisis. R.L. Mazes joins us and takes readers' questions today in Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. Mazes' book is also about unconventional families and moral ambiguity, good people doing bad things. Or are they good people? And R.L., welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you so much. Lala is your main character. Help us understand her empathic abilities. So she can feel what animals feel in her body. So, for example, if there's a dog who has arthritis in their hip, Lala will feel pain in her hip. But it's not only bad parts. If somebody is, including her, is scratching a cat under the chin, she will feel the pleasure. So uh, she can really feel both their emotions, good and bad, and their physical sensations, good and bad. And does she need to be near an animal to feel that? Is proximity important? That's generally true. She does need to be near them. Although if an animal is extremely close to her, she might feel them at a distance. That is, if they have a real relationship, a real Correct. bond. right. Yeah. Give me an example of how this appears in the book. So the first time her father takes her, you'll learn in the book that her father is teaching her to be a burglar. That's what he is. And so when she's young, he teaches her how to burgle homes. And the first time he takes her, there's a dog growling at the door. And he thinks, oh dear, we have to rob another house. But she says, no, no, give me a chance. And she is able just by speaking to that dog, to calm it down, to communicate to the dog that they're not a threat to the dog. Of course, at that point, her father thinks, oh, my God, she's this great weapon that he can use to rob houses. Yes, she becomes quite the asset to someone who is a, would we say, professional burglar? Yes. Yes. Her father is named Zev. And this is the environment that Lala is raised in. So tell me how this idea of an animal empath occurred to you, writing a character who has these abilities. You know, I was writing Lala, and I just thought when I first was writing her, I thought she just would love animals and be close to animals and find them a comfort because her mother's abandoned the family and her father is not necessarily the best father. And I thought she'd, of course, be close to certain animals and they'd give her comfort and And it would be a comfort to the reader, too, to see she's not so isolated, that she has these animals who she cares about and who care about her. But as I'm writing it, it occurs to me, oh, my God, she can actually feel what these animals feel in her body. And 
that was such an exciting moment for a writer because I thought it's going to be so much fun to imagine her moving throughout the world, encountering all these different animals and knowing what they feel in their bodies. And I also thought it would be amazing for readers also to almost see the world through the eyes of animals by reading about Lala. Have you ever met an actual animal empath? I have not. Um, (laughs) Certainly not in the way that Lala is an empath, meaning that she has this magical ability. I have occasionally heard of people who are animal communicators who say that if you're having trouble with an animal, they can speak to the animal and understand what the problem is, let you know what the problem is, and then communicate back to the animal what the solution is going to be. I don't know if I believe that that exists or not, but I know that there are people who who consider themselves animal communicators. Um, But I've never heard of anyone who's an animal empath like Lala. Well, now, this is interesting. It, it is possible that you don't believe in the powers of your own protagonist, in re- like if it were real life. Well, this is, the, this is a book, and it's a book of magical realism. So I don't know if there could be a character like Lala in real life. Um, I'd be open to it, but I've never met anyone like her. This does make her a rather talented veterinary student, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a, the perfect talent to have to become a veterinary student and a veterinarian because one of the really hard things about being a veterinarian is that they can't tell you where it hurts. Now, of course, if you're a good veterinarian, you can manipulate their arms and legs and torso if an animal is in pain and you can figure out where it hurts. But for her to actually be able to feel it in her body will allow her to be a remarkable veterinarian. This is so obvious, and yet I hadn't really considered it. But the difference between a veterinarian and a a doctor of human patients, just the inability to ask them where it hurts or to say, what is your pain on a scale of one to 10? uh, You know, that's just a whole different world that they have to become accustomed to. R.L. Mazes, people are animals. How is Lala at reading people? She's terrible at reading people. (laughs) She's just awful. You know, and maybe it's because she's been abandoned by her mom, so she has some trauma around dealing with people. And maybe because Zev, her father, isn't the best father, she can't read people at all. And so that's actually not so good for a veterinarian because part of the job of a veterinarian is to be empathic toward the parents of the animals that come in, too, and to understand that they're worried, that they're upset, and to help them deal with their own feelings um, when their animals are not feeling well. But she's not good at that part of it. And, and part of the challenge in the book is for her to learn how to be empathic toward people. That's where she needs to grow. So I mentioned that this novel is also about a family crisis involving Lala's dad, Zev. You mentioned that he is a burglar by trade. He uses the persona, the alter ego of a locksmith. This is, in a way, how he gets access into people's homes. And obviously the skills of a locksmith come in handy if you're going to enter a home maliciously. And he's been a burglar since Lala was little, even pulled her out of school because he was afraid that she might blow his cover. Let me have you read a passage from the book, Other People's Pets, about the first time Her dad, Zev, brings her on a job. It's the winter of 1999, 
And I'll say this book is set in Colorado in the fictional town of Longview, which seems a bit reminiscent of Longmont to me, given that you live in Niwot. R.L., what do you think? True enough. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) True enough. Um, So the one thing I'll say about this passage is that it's set when Lala is eight, and most of the book takes place when she's an adult. After Lala quiets the barking dog during her first job with her father, Zeb thrusts his chin toward a security decal in the window. You see that, he whispers? Fake. Real ones have the alarm company name. A blue backpack hangs from her father's shoulder. When no one answers the doorbell, they go around back. Zev pulls a crowbar from under his coat and shows Lala how to insert it above the lock. He pries open the door, splintering the frame. Worry buzzes through Lala's arms and legs, sits like a helmet on her head. She longs to run, but is afraid to leave Zev. Breaking into a house seems wrong, but how can it be? if her father is doing it. In the master bedroom, Zev goes through drawers carefully, dropping items into his backpack. An iris setter observes them from his bed in a corner of the room, chin on his paws. Lala scratches his ears, then stations herself next to a window that faces the front yard, as if by watching for trouble she can keep it away. A mail carrier walks up the street, shoving envelopes through slots. Will the woman notice something amiss? Hear them inside through the narrow opening? Lala tugs her father's sleeve and points. Putting a finger to his lips, Zev continues searching the room. The mail carrier stitches a path from house to house, her cart scrabbling along the sidewalk. Lala peeks from behind the curtain, fingers clenching the red muslin. When the woman turns up the walk, Lala wraps herself in the fabric. Chunk, chunk, comes the mail. Frightened, Lala wets herself, the first time since she was a baby. In the car, soggy and cold, Lala hides her condition from her father. At a truck stop, Zeph breathes on the diamond, fogging it. See how it doesn't stay misty? That's how you know it's real, he says. When Lala barely nods, Zev shoves the diamond in his pocket. She could at least pretend to be interested, he thinks, after insisting he take her with him. Hmm. Lala reflects there that this seems wrong. She knows even as a young child that there's something off about this way of life. She grows up to become a deeply kind person towards animals. I think she's vegetarian or vegan, maybe. She's vegan. She's vegan. She probably thinks of herself as a good person. And yet, for reasons that we won't explain, so I don't give too much away, She has to resort to the burglar life later on. And it just got me thinking, R.L., about what does it mean to be a good person? Is someone who's kind to animals but traumatizes people by breaking into their homes, is that a kind person? Is that a good person? Yeah, you know, that's a complex person. And I think when we write about characters, we want them to be complex, And that's because human beings are complex. We are all complex. Um, None of us is all good or all bad. And so it's interesting to explore those kinds of issues on the page. So, you know, I would say that she has some growing to do. She definitely does some things that readers will take issue with. 
Uh, she does some things that I, as a writer, might even take issue with, but that I feel the character would do, at least at this point in her life. Have you been burgled? Yes, unfortunately. Um, when I was growing up, uh, and I grew up in Queens, New York, uh, my home was burgled numerous times. And one time I was in it. Oh. It was, yes. Um, it was a Saturday night, and I was with a friend, and we were the only ones home. And I heard someone coming up the stairs. And I said, hi, Dad, because I just thought my father had come home, and, you know, he wasn't the type to say, honey, I'm home. He would just come home quietly. So we heard that. So I said that, but then I heard, well, I don't know if I can say this word on the radio. <laughs> um, I heard, oh, darn, <laughs> there's somebody here. And um, footsteps running down the steps. So we ran into my parents' room, which was the only room uh, that, on the second floor that had a lock. And we locked the door. And I called 911. And I shouted until the police came, the police are coming. The police are coming. They did come after five or ten minutes. And the burglars had left, which was great. Uh, yeah. They had taken some, yes, <laughs> they had taken certain things. And that wasn't the only time. Our house was burgled so many times that eventually there were bars on the doors and windows of our house, which was really awful. Um, so I'm sure that made an impression on me and came out in this book. I will say, though, that I was the victim of burglaries. And yet I decided to write about the perpetrators. And I did that because I thought it would be more interesting. I thought it would be so interesting to get into the psychology of burglars, to research and understand why they do what they do and how they do it. You know, what are their techniques? Not only that, but I also think victims are a little less interesting to write about than people who are being active. So I thought the burglars, Lala and her father, would be more interesting characters in that sense. I'm curious if this taught you, this exercise, anything about protecting yourself from burglars or, or robbers, for that matter? Well, certainly from burglars, because one of the things that burglars uh, will look for is a home that has very thick uh, brush around the home to hide behind while they're breaking into a door. Or even in, at the side, if there's a lot of thick bushes, then they can hide kind of behind those while they're breaking in through a window and people won't see them. So it's not a good idea to have thick bushes in front of your door or next to a side window. I, I learned that. I also definitely learned that a well-lit house is less likely to be one that a burglar wants to get into. Again, too easy to see them. Someone passing by will be able to see them and identify them. One of the best protections against uh, burglary is a dog. Uh, oh. Not in Lala's case, but in general, a burglar who hears a dog barking would rather go to the neighbor. So maybe not so nice for your neighbor, but in fact, it is a very good way to protect yourself. Let's take this question from Stephanie Lindbergh and Centennial, shall we? I'm wondering if RL has pets now. Do any of your pets make it into the book in some way? Also, my pets are fascinated by this conversation. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, I do have pets now. I have a rescued dog named Rosie who spent the first year of her life homeless. So we're super happy to have her in our home now. And I think she's happy to be there. And we have a rescued cat, Ari. And uh, she's 
equally wonderful and they get along, which is really great. I'd had two dogs, a lab mix and an Aussie mix, named Tilly and Chance before I had this pair of animals that I have now. And they are models uh, for black and blue. They're just models. They're, they're, I took a lot of liberties. So my Aussie mix didn't steal things. But I loved writing about, you know, having them in mind when I was writing the dogs that are in the book because I, in some ways I felt like it was a tribute to them. The dogs are named Black and Blue, Lala's dogs. She has a cat named Mo. Let's take this question from Sharona Fine in Boulder. Her father is named Zev, which means wolf. Did you write this into his character? If so, what in her character does Lala represent? So I absolutely named Zev um, Zev because it meant wolf. In Hebrew. In Hebrew, yes. And so I thought that would be a really good name for him, uh, given his character. Lala does have a meaning in the book, but I don't want to spoil the story of why and how her mother gave her that name. So I'm going to leave that for the reader to discover. The point is that you've given a lot of thought to the names and to what they say about the characters. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really important part of writing a book. And I often go through different names for the characters Uh, just as a title is a very important part of a book, and I'll go through different titles as I'm writing the book. And it's an opportunity. It's it's an opportunity to have some fun, but it's also an opportunity to say something more about the character. We have someone who is stepping up to the podium to ask their own question. It's Vicki Strong, and I live in Denver, Colorado. The question I would like to ask is that I noticed you had Zev and Lala practicing some Judaism. And I'm Jewish. I'm not a practicing spiritual person, but I do know in the Jewish faith, there's quite a bit of morality. And I found that interesting that you chose Judaism, and I wanted to know why. Sure. So the first answer to the question is that I'm Jewish. So I know about Jewish customs. And and so it was very natural for me to have these characters be Jewish and celebrate Hanukkah or not celebrate Hanukkah, but think about Hanukkah and know about the Ten Commandments. And so that's one reason why. And, you know, they do say, write about what you know. So that's, in that sense, I did that. But the other thing I would say, and I want to turn it around a little bit, would be, why not? Why not? Why should all the characters that we read about in books be Protestant or Catholic? Why shouldn't they be Jewish? You know, as a Jewish person, sometimes it's fun when I see people in that sense like me in the book. And yet a third reason that I did it was that I thought it'd be very fun to kind of turn around the Jewish stereotype a little bit. You know, sometimes we, you know, we see in literature, in movies, we see the Jewish lawyer, we see the Jewish accountant. And I thought, I'm going to write a Jewish burglar. You know, it's going to be a little different. Stay on with us for a second. Do you have a pet, Vicki Strong from Denver? I do. Her name is Chelsea. In fact, she's with me. Oh, Chelsea. And what is Chelsea? Who is Chelsea? Chelsea is, she is a German Shepherd, Wire Fox Terrier, Chow Mix. Oh. And she's my service dog. I'm a veteran. And um, she's very good. I don't know if you can see her face very well. And her, yes, I can see her, her gray muzzle. Yes, she's um, going to be 13 in um, April. Well, Vicki, thank you for your service. Thank you. Okay, more questions. I think Ellen Orleans in Boulder. 
You've created a complex family in other people's pets. How did you develop the family characters enough to challenge the reader without losing overall cohesion? Wow. <laughs> I know that's um, a deep question. Ellen is a deep reader. Ellen that is a, yes. Ellen almost sounds like a teacher to me. Yes. You know, sometimes I don't know the answers to questions. And I'm not sure as a writer, we always can articulate everything that we're doing. I started this book. I wanted to write a father-daughter story. I knew that I did. And then the rest evolved. You know, the fact that the mother would abandon the family evolved. How close Lala and Zev would become because he isolates her. And so it's really just the two of them kind of evolved as I was telling the story. And, you know, the first time I, when I write the first draft, I am literally telling myself the story. So I'm not a person who outlines the book at the beginning. I just tell myself the story and see where it goes. So, I, you know, I knew that Zev and Lala were going to have a very, very deep bond. They were going to be together all the time. And it wasn't going to necessarily be a healthy bond. I knew that the bond with Alyssa was something that was going to be painful for Lala. A mother abandoning you is going to be painful and deep in that sense. But I don't, when you ask the question and you talk about cohesion, I'm just not sure. um, Because I actually see this family as one that is struggling to figure out how to be a family together. I don't necessarily see them as one that's so cohesive. Why do you think Alyssa became a mother? It's, it's very clear in the book she doesn't want to be one. Yeah, it is clear. And so that makes her a pretty bad one. But I think society pressures women to become mothers, a little less so now than in the olden days. But still, I think there's pressure to become a mother. And in the book, Zev pressures her uh, to become a mother And so uh, she gives in to that, and maybe she shouldn't have, although, of course, then we don't have Lala. Is this a pressure you felt, R.L. Mazes? A little bit. I remember different members of my family. So I'll say I don't have kids. My animals are my kids. But I remember um, different members of my family at different times sending me things that would help me get pregnant. (laughs) And I was married. I mean, I, but, um, you know, and it, it might have been a study that was done at UCLA about, and I wasn't necessarily trying to get pregnant, I, you know, but someone in my family might have thought, well, that's an appropriate thing to send me. Uh, or someone else in my family might have considered artificial insemination and but decided not to do it and then sent me the videotape of the person they chose, <laughs> you know, if they were going to do it, if they were going to do artificial insemination, they were going to use this man. And so they sent me the videotape of that man, (laughs) sort of bizarre. So even in my modern day, there's still some pressure. I do remember when my my mother finally understood that she was going to have grand dogs and not grand kids. And she put together a really lovely package that included these mint tennis balls and all kinds of frisbees for the dogs. I remember how happy that made me, that she was uh, finally seeing who I I really was. Okay, more questions from our audience. Judith Mamet in Denver wonders, what is one of your favorite magical realism novels? And again, you describe other people's pets as magical realism. 
Yes. So this year, I won't say favorite because favorite is tough, but this year, Kevin Wilson had a book called Nothing to See Here. I love Kevin Wilson and all of his books, or at least the ones I've read, are magical realism. And um, he wrote a book, um, Nothing to See Here, and it's actually about children who combust when they're angry. Now, they don't burn up. <laughs> so they combust and they can burn things around them, but they're fine, just so you know. The kids are okay. Uh, <laughs> but it's a wonderful, wonderful book, and I really enjoyed it. Um, he wrote another book called The Family Fang a couple of years ago that I thought oh, yes. was marvelous. And so I certainly always really enjoy his books and try to learn from them. And yeah. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. R.L. Mazes lives in Niwot near Boulder. Her new novel is Other People's Pets. We chose it for Turn the Page, where we read a book together, then meet the author, and we'll announce our summer selection soon. Grateful, as always, to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And special thanks to producer Alexandra McMahon and stage manager Aaron Joy Swank. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC.